I am passionate about helping others cultivate excellence, both in their craft and in their life. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Oftentimes, the biggest thing that we battle is our own brain, our own thoughts, our own instincts, and even our own existence. And when you don't have that under control, things can quickly spiral out of control. My next guest is someone who understands the importance of being able to bring our thoughts into perspective and rework them into a way that benefits not only ourselves, but those around us. When it comes to networking, we often call people we can count on mentors, but a mentor can also be called a coach. Adam Wright is not just any coach, though. He's a performance coach at the highest level. His clientele is the ultra elite. Think Olympic athletes, professional athletes, celebrities, entertainers, and hard-charging CEOs. He didn't achieve this modicum of success without learning a thing or two about the value of relationships and knowing how important those relationships are when it comes to dealing with all the internal struggles we constantly face on a daily basis. Even he has his own coach. In fact, he has multiple coaches because he knows that in order to thrive, you can't go at it alone. Adam brings a lot to the table in terms of his life experience and his knowledge of how the mind works, and I'm fortunate to have had the opportunity to tap into some of those insights and share their tremendous value with you today. Speaking of value, I'm going to throw out a suggestion. Make sure that you stick around for this entire conversation as Adam makes an extremely generous offer. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with top performance coach and my friend, Dr. Adam Wright. Adam, I really appreciate you coming on the show for so many reasons. I guess first and foremost that we are uh, social distancing in this time, these crazy times that we're here. And there's something that you're going to offer to people. And I don't want to spoil the alert now. Maybe we'll save that for later that I think is extremely benevolent of you, just the offer to give back. I don't want to, again, steal your thunder. And I think it also just really speaks well to what it means to build relationships and offer and give. And I'm just excited to have you on. I think there's so much, I don't think, I know there's a lot of wisdom that what you do and what you offer that those that are listening to this show could sincerely benefit from. Not to mention, I think you've got a really interesting story that needs to be told. So what do you say we get rolling? Sounds great. I appreciate you inviting me. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. Awesome. Do, do you mind giving us a, just a, a quick overview of kind of who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. So by trade and training, I'm a high performance and well-being coach. I have a master's and a doctorate in applied sport and exercise psychology. I've also studied applied physiology and clinical psychology in graduate school. But ultimately, I went to a research-oriented program to finish my PhD uh, Temple University. But that doesn't tell the story, right? <laughs> That's the 30-second pitch. I am passionate about helping others cultivate excellence, both in their craft and in their life. And I spent the last 25 years doing that, working across, I think at this point, I would say 16 different sports at the amateur and pro level, from 12-year-old nationally ranked squash players to PGA Tour players. I work with CEOs of public and private companies, billionaire hedge fund executives, Hollywood celebrities, pretty much the gamut. And I think it's interesting what the underlying theme in all this is like you, I base what I do on relationships. And what we were talking about earlier, giving my background, my father, who's been a barber for 60 years in Trenton, New Jersey, started on the USS Kitty Hawk in the beginning of Vietnam. So that's an interesting story unto itself. But he said to me one time, as a little punk kid going to stepping beyond my 
Trenton roots and going to college. Uh, I was the first person to go to high school, finished high school in my father's family. I uh, said, you know, we do the same things. We both play with heads, but we just come at it from a different angles. And I said, yeah, pff, right, right. Of course, yeah, little you know. But when I thought about it and I got older and a little bit more mature, he's spot on. And what I see in his practice over 60 years, generations of people see him, generations, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, their kids. And in many ways, I've been doing the same. We make people feel better about themselves through our relationship and being heard and being understood. He does it through scissors. And I do it through psychological theory, but effectively we're doing the same thing. So, yeah. Wow. How about that story? <laughs> oh my God. What'd you learn from him? As a, a kid growing up, I'm assuming you spent a decent amount of time in the barbershop. I did. I, and that's exactly what you learn is how to create relationships. You make people feel at home. You make people feel understood. You learn their names. You learn something about them that matters and you do it because you're interested, not because you're looking to get something back in return. And I think more than anything, I've seen that in my father. He's kept these relationships literally for 50, 60 years with the same clients. It's remarkable. Yeah. He's been cutting someone's head, the same head for 50 years. Obviously, they probably had a lot more hair to begin with. But this is a few <laughs> strands left. But that is a skill set. I think part of it, as you said, there is a genetic predisposition toward that. But at the same time, it can be learned. And uh, you might not be able to actualize it as much as someone in the best in the business but you can definitely get better by learning yeah. these skills. So you're working with a, just like a wide range. I mean, the scope of people that you are working with, and I'm assuming the ages also vary significantly. Is that fair to say? Yes. And I've also been a college professor for 10 years. So before I saw here, this is a perfect example. Before I saw you today, I've been on Zoom because that's our new life. <laughs> yeah. I had a 65-year-old psychoanalyst and film producer. I had two 80-something-year-old, one artist, one is an Academy Award-winning film producer. I had a 20-year-old sports psychology undergraduate student who I mentor. And then I had a 67-year-old CEO of one of the largest private companies in the country. And this is just today? This is before I came to see you. Just, <laughs> just today. Wow. Okay. So all over the map. Yeah. 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 Is there a common theme amongst all of these people? Or, or not even just these people, but just in general who the kinds of people that you're working with? A common theme in the sense that people want to improve and see it's possible to improve and that even 1% can make a huge difference in their lives. Yes. Mm. As Tim Ferriss calls it, the tools of titans. And you're around these people to a large degree. And what you see, there are themes clearly from a personality perspective. And I think if I were to pick one that I saw, even with some of these young kids, they're pretty clear on what they want, exactly what they want and why they want it. There's a purpose and a meaning in what they're trying to achieve. Not to say that's consistent over time. It might change, but it's fairly crystallized across the board. you mind if I interject there? Because I think that's Please. a really interesting point. So the people that are coming to you or for the majority of the people that you're working with, they already have that and you're there to exponentially make, or even just depending on what level they're at, just to help them move the needle closer to what they're already focused on. I think that's a great way to put it. I think they're on their path, whatever that journey is. And like all of us, it helps to have a mentor along the way. Because so I clearly don't have answers. I don't have solutions, nor should I as a coach. But I do, I'm familiar enough with the research and the data to provide them with information so they come to their own answers. And it's funny how few people have coaches when the top of people, I mean, the top CEOs, the LeBron James has a co I mean, everybody has coaches at the top. Why don't more people? I, it's funny. I work with, I was down in, in Miami with LeBron's biomechanist, who's actually a Navy SEAL, Donnie Raymond. He's been public, it's public, they're in a relationship. And I don't know anyone at the highest level. I don't know anyone that doesn't have a coach. And usually it's multiple coaches, including a psychotherapist or two. Do you think it's because there's so many people that are invested in them that they're encouraged to have coaches? Or is this because they're just so driven, they are just looking to get whatever edge it is that they can get? I think the latter okay. is probably the case. I can't speak for everyone. But I also think there is a... Um, are you familiar with Brene Brown's work and yeah. vulnerability? And yep. if you look at this, and I think for people at that level, it's ironic. They're not scared of being vulnerable. In fact, not having a coach allows them to be more fragile. Because they realize that someone who has specific content expertise and can tease certain aspects of themselves that are not fully actualized or are realizing can always be an asset. And so no matter where they are in their life journey, they find someone else to bring them to the next level. 
and it's unusual. I don't think I've ever met anyone at this stage. 25 years of doing this, I'd say I have between 25,000 and 30,000 FaceTime hours with clients at this point. Mm. And, and never. Never. Not at the highest levels. Yeah. No. What is the biggest challenge that you're coming across or maybe they're facing? You mean right now? Well, <laughs> we can talk about now as well. I mean, Both, we, we could go there. Yeah. I know we want to make this green, evergreen, but I think it's important to say it's timely. We've been thrown in a global pandemic, yeah. right? And a lot of clients that I know are thrown into this world of isolation and retreat. Some of them are stuck on Zoom calls for 12 hours a day. And I think at this point, rather than falling into despair or even panic, which is easy to do, to get mm -hmm. lost in this constant thing you're doing, I think those that are going to be successful that I see and those that are going to thrive in this is they're willing to go deeper into the practice. I think so many of these people right now, I think are struggling between doing and being. And as much as we have to do right now, obviously be more productive. At the same time, we have to take our schedule or deliberately create time in our schedule to be still and to be and to work on these other aspects of self. We could get a bit more into that from a sports psychology perspective, but I think that's going to be the constant dynamic and tugging both sides. So it's funny you said sports dynamic. How different are you coaching the CEO versus the captain of the team? Well, I mean, right now things have changed for me. Yeah. So I was working with five aspiring national team members for track and field team. Trials were coming up in June and that very well could be the end of the game for them. We don't know when it's going to be or if it's going to be and if they're going to be healthy or peaking at that time. It's a very different conversation than dealing with a CEO right now who's trying to manage hundreds of employees or thousands of employees. Just very different conversations. Yeah. But the brain on stress is the brain on stress. Regardless of what's driving the stress, the mechanisms are the same. And I think self-mastery and emotional regulation, the skills, they could be used in any venue. It really doesn't matter. Is there a simple like skill like a stress skill set that maybe someone who's listening today could walk away with, not to sure. kind of take all the tools or, or tricks out of your bag, but if there's just something that you could recommend someone's listening to today that they could turn this podcast off and implement, at least just get them on the right track. So let me step back for a moment on this, because now you're opening up to the world of sports psychology. <laughs> so sports psychology, is, I'm going to just break this down, right? Typically, yep. the way you look at it is mental skills training has a cognitive skill set. And usually what we talk about, and we hear this a lot, and it's positive self-talk, confidence, attentional focus, motivation and goal setting, learning imagery and visualization, problem solving, concepts of continual learning. And then there's another element of this, which is much more mind-body, right? biophysiological and biopsychological, where we're talking about relaxation, emotional control, controlling performance anxiety, let's do a mindfulness, deliberate practice, even building routines that are repeatable. We live in, right now in a world of ambiguity and volatility, and what we need is comfort, and comfort comes from routines. It's giving us a sense of local control, sense of autonomy, a sense of agency. So all of these could be used right now, right? And we could probably talk about almost all of them, but if you want to do this in the most simplistic way, and I think it's often overused, I call it the world of mindfulness, but being still and creating a real deliberate breathing practice regularly every day when you wake up for a few minutes can be incredibly powerful just to get in the sense where you're balanced and you have your emotions at the right state. We often use this idea. We use it with every client. We talk about the emotional threshold and knowing when you're above it. Let's say it's a six out of 10. And when you're above it, you're running around like a chicken without a head. And when you're below it, you feel like you're in control. The conscious mind is taking over. And to be able to be aware of that, when you go to that place, you have to have awareness when you're stepping over that line. And the best way to cultivate that awareness is through breath and mindfulness. So if you're not doing it now, now's the time. The least amount you could do is breathe. And if you want to develop a real practice of mindfulness, there are so many apps out there that do this exceptionally well that are free. Go online and get one. So it's interesting. I'm surprised that it's the morning when you wake up, but I guess you're setting the tone for the day. Is that? Yes. And what we talk about often is creating rituals in the morning, AM, PM rituals. So Creating a journaling practice, a breath practice, a movement practice. This could all take 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be extensive, but it's a routine. It's a way to set the pace for the day. And the idea is that you win in your mind before you win the day. Get your mind straight, know your goals, what your micro goals are, get in touch with where you are. I mean, we do a lot of actually a lot of monitoring of uh, biometrics. We use I was gonna ask yeah, you HRV. Yeah. We, oh, we're looking at sleep, all these factors all the time and seeing where you are. And sometimes you're going to wake up and you're green, you're ready to go. But sometimes you're going to wake up and be yellow or even red. And we need to listen to that. 
and tune in. Interesting. Technology helps too. By any chance, you know who Wim Hof is? Of course. Yeah. I've done some of his work. Absolutely. Have you really? Yeah, I'm yeah. dying to go. Uh, I've done some ice plunge. I've done an ice plunge and some breath work, some holotropic breath work out in California. I was out in San Diego. Interesting. Um, yeah. what, what were some of the takeaways from his stuff? Well, it was adapted with Mark Devine and uh, his the Unmeetable Mind stuff that we'll talk a little bit more from Seal Fit. I think what it comes down to is number one is finding altered states of consciousness mm -hmm. without drugs, yep. which is interesting. I also think it's transcending self-imposed boundaries. I went into a tub of in, in the middle of about an hour and a half of physical exercise. In the midst of this, we went to an ice tub with a partner who was an ex-Iraqi, who was a vet who had PTSD. We went in together and the goal was to sit underwater for 10 or 15 seconds. We both had partners in case we passed out. And it took us about four or five times to get him calm enough because he was a full-blown panic attack to do it together. And honestly, I didn't know that I could do it. But interesting, when you're in the service of others, yep. you realize what you're capable of doing. And that's what you learned about at the time. These were Navy SEALs that were running this programming. I realized how they, how they operate is being part of the team and serving the team. It's about the we. And when you put that together with a mission that's shared, Within a team, you can accomplish incredible things. Yeah. It's so funny how much you can learn from SEALs. And I think some of the things you were talking about before, they don't even realize how much of the psychology of what they've done kind of filters in or can impact regular life. I, I can't remember if it was Jocko Wilnick yes. or if it was a, yeah. So he had, uh, his whole thing is to, and, and you talked about this before, like the subconscious versus the conscience, uh, the, the conscience is to try to make as little decisions as possible. Yep. Getting back to creating these habits. Habits you know, of thought? Yeah. Habits, habits of, of behavior. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, yes. Well, both. Right. To try to make yourself as limited as possible in how much conscious, because it's conscious where you have the problems, I guess. Uh, right. And I, I think there's an irony there. <laughs> yeah. Within constraints, you find freedom. Right. Within discipline. Yeah, that, that's actually, right? Within yeah, discipline, yeah. you find freedom. At the same time, I think our mind plays tricks on us right? The monkey mind plays tricks on us and you have to be able to deal with that. And I think what I find with a lot of my clients is they feel they shouldn't be struggling with this at the highest levels, right? At this point, I should be confident all the time and I should not have doubts. And the mind doesn't work that way. From an evolutionary perspective, seeing threats in the environment and interpreting them as such kept us alive. We have to learn how to turn that off. And I think there are great ways to do this using cognitive behavioral theories or acceptance Commitment therapy, there's some really good research, clinical ways to deal with this from a pathological perspective that we can bring in the performance perspective. Such great data. We know it works. Thousands of studies. We can use it ourselves. Yeah. So getting back to our present day, we're in this deep in the heart of, uh, of COVID right yeah. now. Anything that you'd recommend to the non-Olympic uh, athlete, the non-CEO, <laughs> that uh, they should be doing, how they should be thinking about things, how they can be dealing with this current situation? So I'm going to frame this. I'm going to walk outside the sports psychology perspective a little bit more and talk a little bit about Unbeatable Mind, which is a training program, a coaching program that brought me to you. Mm. <laughs> that I just completed. And we talk about in this program about addressing the five mountains. Of particular interest to me are three, but at this time we have the opportunity to really dig in a little bit deeper in terms of our self-development and self-mastery. And the three mountains I, I like people to focus on is the physical mountain, it's pretty obvious, right? Developing strength, stamina, endurance, durability, looking at proper fuel, looking at sleep, looking at recovery. I think we feel like we can't do that because we can't go to the gym, but that's nonsense. I mean, all you have to do is go on the line right now, and there are some great, great programs out there that are free, that are just exercise. They're training with purpose, with progressions, right, with cycles. Secondly is the mental mountain. And I think we could focus more on mental control and concentration. I think we get very caught up in the idea of mental toughness, where probably we should focus a little bit more on mental flexibility upgrading our skills, upgrading our knowledge, creating more optionality. I think we get caught up, particularly as professionals, that we do this for our professional life, but we forget to do this in our personal life. So we need to start setting measurable goals in all aspects. I say the I and the we, mm -hmm. right? So it has to incorporate both parts of self, interpersonal and intrapersonal, and also the emotional mountain, which for a lot of guys, they don't want to talk about this, right? It's not where we want to go, but it's also how you define emotions. 
right? It's about harnessing emotions, experience them for what they are, be able to move on from them, being more aware of them when they come on, right? Being able to let go of them, right? Whether it's anger or if it's fear, be able to talk about them, particularly from creating better connections with people, communicating more effectively. This is how we build resiliency. It's not being more and more gritty. I think we get overly caught up in grit. Mm. Actually, I think it's just the opposite. It's allowing yourself to be a little more vulnerable, you know, not gritting and bearing it all the time, talking a little bit more. And ultimately, that will make you more anti-fragile. And to use Nassim Talib's concept. So the three mountains are physical, mental, emotional? Emotional. He adds a couple others, which yeah. is intuitive, yeah. which is an interesting one. Particularly now, I think you're probably hyper aware of that in terms of understanding your space and your place in it, being a bit more threat oriented. And now being aware of our space between other people, having our protective gear on when necessary, these kind of, and also listening to our sixth sense. I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, behavioral economist, and he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. But what we also need to be aware of is how our intuition fails us, right? How our, it's influenced by our biases and being aware of them. Like, like the cognitive biases? Cognitive or just, biases. So sure, of course. You talk about a Malcolm Gladwell who's sure. like, he's saying, oh, which, what was the book? Blink yes. that he wrote where essentially, and I'm sure I'm going to bastardize this, but these gut reactions are being calculated at such a fast, it's not really a, you know, you are processing it. So it's not really gut or maybe it is gut, but it's as a result of experiences or things that you've learned. Right. But that kind of contradicts a little bit of what well, you're saying. No, it doesn't. I think he's no. spot on. I think he's he, he's looking at, he looked at a lot of Daniel Kahneman's work. By the way, I saw him speak with David Epstein at the MIT Sports Analytic Conference and David wrote The Sport Gene and he wrote a more recent book, which is fantastic too. But they had this wonderful conversation and between those two minds is just incredible to take it in. He's a big sports guy. He's big sport, big runner. Yeah, he and loves basketball. And basketball too, yeah. But I think he took a lot of Daniel Kahneman's work. And I, yes, the gut is doing all these calculations unconsciously. Like 95% of what we're taking in is unconscious. We're only taking in 5%. We could, we'd be overwhelmed by the amount of data if we were to take it all in, right? We couldn't function in the world. But it also, that thinking fast part of the brain, what Daniel Kahneman calls thinking want, the first mind, is often wrong. And you have to be careful and you mm. have to listen to it. How do you know? I think part of this is the process, right? Yeah. And you having heuristics and systems. And I think that you will have a thought and you have to pause. I think often what you see under stress is people act and they think afterwards. So the thought comes up and they act on it. And then after the time, they, take a, they might pause and think about why they acted and create a narrative around it. And the argument is to do just the opposite. Something happens that causes stress in the environment. Rather than react, right, which is our normal reaction, we should pause and take a breath. And realize that that trigger reaction, is that based upon an old experience, past history, maybe our genetics or epigenetics? What's driving that? Is that moving us more closely to our goal or away from our goal? And if we find that it's not moving us closer or it's putting us in a position where we continue to feel threatened, then maybe we need to change our system and contemplate a little more, use the thinking slow system and evaluate the situation based upon the facts in front of us. So I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong. Obviously, it's right a lot of the time, but you can't be so quick to let it drive every behavior that we engage with, so particularly where, under stress, because we fall back into dispositions and old habits. Yeah. Where's the balance you know, of, uh, of knowing to, th to think or act quickly versus digesting that thought and taking a step back. My feeling always is that the procedure should be always take a breath and pause before we act in any case. Mm. What you see, uh, I, I think th this is something based upon rational emotive behavioral therapy and a, a man, a fascinating guy named Albert Ellis died a few years ago, probably one of the most famous next to Freud, the psychologist of you know, the 20th century, but he was basically the godfather of cognitive behavioral therapy. And before this was much more psychoanalysis and he got into cognitions matter, right? Cognitions matter. It's not just unconscious. And what he showed was, which is very interesting, and you could obviously, you could work this out on paper if you have the time, but let's say a recent, give me a recent time when you got upset about something or someone who pissed you off. You want, you want to Yeah, scenario? give me something. Give me, yeah. My wife snapping at me. Okay. She snapped at you. Yeah. Okay. For whatever reason, she snapped at you. So that was the activating event. And what was the consequence of that event? How did you respond? Originally defensive. Right. Which uh, didn't bring out a great 
outcome. Exactly. So you felt frustrated, defensive. You had to protect yourself and your ego and your identity. Correct. How, how dare she? Just whatever internal dialogue happened that probably was not the most productive. Consequence. So her snapping you immediately caused the consequence, right? Correct. Well, his argument was there was a belief system in, in the midst of this. It's A, B, C, not A, C. And that belief system is how you interpret that event. You know? So if you were to reframe that and say, before you responded and you said, my wife's under a lot of pressure, she's dealing with the kids at home, we're stuck inside, self-isolating, has nothing to do with me. She just lost it for a second. It's okay. And rather than being angry with her, you could feel sorry for her. Mm-hmm. How would that make you feel as a consequence? Interesting. <laughs> right? Make you really think think through a different lens. Through a different lens. So how can Empathize. you put, Right, exactly. Once you bring empathy in and realize that you have a choice in that pause, there is always a choice that you can change the outcome in terms of your overall emotions. And you could do this all the time. So that's like, what is it? It's not life is uh, 90, wait, what is the saying? 90, life is uh, 10% what happens and 90% how you react. Or exactly. So, so. exactly. But the idea is you can choose to take a belief system. We can choose right now to see the world as one of abundance or scarcity, right? Yeah. And based upon one of abundance, we could choose to say, this is not a zero-sum game. And we could be generous right now with our time, with our skills, with our talents. Or we could huddle in and protect mm. and hoard. Not a so, fan of the hoard. Right. right. But, but the, that may be your yeah. gut instinct to protect yourself. Mm. And at this point, that might not be the best. I would argue it's not the best. Let's take it back then. So what do you do? So right now, there are a lot of people that might have even thought that they were coming from an abundance mindset when really right now they're in scarcity mode. Yes. There are a lot of people that they didn't realize. I've noticed this in these times. It's amazing how many people they thought they did have stress, but now they have real stress. And now they're not handling that stress that well. What do you say to that person? How do you how do you unwind them? Or what advice would you give them? Obviously the breathing, obviously taking a step back, take a minute to try to not just react. Right. Um, what else? Is there anything? I mean, I know there's no magic bullet. Right. This takes a lot of time. Part of this is developing systems, right? Yeah. Understanding their self-talk, understanding their situation. Part of it's getting people to connect to a community in a way that they can communicate and so they're not feeling isolated or alone and realize this is a human condition. Right, we're all experiencing it simultaneously. I think that's very important. Can I interject before you keep with that thought? So you just touched on something that I'd love to kind of take this through a little bit. Loneliness is an issue, big issue that's going on right now. And in 2017, Vivek Murthy, who used to be the oh my god, now I'm forgetting what his title was for the the World Health Organization. Yes. He was the head of the World yep. Health, and they identified back then as loneliness being the 21st century's biggest problem yeah yeah that, that as, as detrimental to health than smoking yeah more yeah a very exactly a lot more so re- really really interesting and so so there's this massive loneliness issue the average person i'm not going to go bore you with the whole statistic but in the 80s the average person had at least three confidants three people that they could call up and tell anything like hey i just robbed the bank to whatever it was their most intimate secret Nowadays, that, that statistic is actually less than one. The average person has less than one. So what's, really, what's also interesting is that people at the higher levels have less, they're, they're the most, some of the most lonely people. Is that something it, that you've experienced? And is, so? question, is that across gender? Uh, I believe it is. I don't now, I, now I don't know that research well enough, uh-huh. but I'm, I don't recall it being one of, more so than one or the other. So is that something I experience with the some of these elite performers? Yeah, correct. Because at the top, like, so I'm part of a called mastermind groups. I yes. don't know if you're familiar with those. And I think communities of common purpose and do it, yeah. it oh, yeah. are essential right now. Yeah. Okay. That's where uh, I was going. Yeah. yeah I, I think though, exactly what people should do be doing more of. Part of it's you know this Jordan work work ethic. I think part of it is this idea that if you do connect with others, somehow you're needy. Somehow you're making yourself vulnerable. You're not strong. You're not gritty. We could do this alone. I mean, these are nonsense narratives that we tell ourselves. In so many ways, the people that I work with, I find the people the most successful have a pretty strong circle. Remember, I'm not a clinical psychologist. Yeah, I'm a performance guy. The people that usually see me are performing at a very high level. They're whole. They're not needy. They're not fragmented. So I, I would argue that my colleagues who see people that are going through depression, anxiety, are the people that are probably more prone to solitude and loneliness. 
I don't see that. The yeah. guys I see for the most, and, and women obviously, is, are optimizing. And part of that optimization is being around a community of support. So what is it like? Walk me through the life cycle of someone that you're working with. Is this something that they're working with you in perpetuity? Are they working with you for, I don't know, is it a six-month time? I mean, I'm sure it's all of the above, but but, but what's the minute? I'm going to ask you a lot, of, yeah, if you don't mind. Let me, let me start yeah, high, and then yeah. is, is it you've got to do an analysis first, you know, a deep dive, and then you come up with a plan with them, or do they say, hey, no, Adam, I need, this is what I'm looking for. And again, I got so many questions to follow yeah, up on that. So, yeah. so I started this business when I was 28, and it was purely from a physical perspective, at least I thought so. And remember too, I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate. So there was always a philosophical component in all of this. So nothing is physical, right? It's both, always, it's integrated, right? This idea of a Cartesian dualism never existed in my mind, right? Movement was part of being healthy and well holistically. So I started as a trainer and uh, I'm actually a certified exercise physiologist. I spent a lot of time in exercise physiology lab as a graduate student. I started at Columbia University, studying applied physiology there in the lab. So I was very much into training people physically and some of those clients that I started with at when I was 28 and now 48, 20 years later, they're still with me. Wow. Yeah, they're still with me. Now we've grown, the relationship's grown because my skill sets have grown, but they've never left. And I think the closest thing when I did a lot of my research, my doctoral research, what I was interested in, what, what was it about this? It struck me as odd. I thought I teach people the basics, these biomechanics, exercise fizz, and here's what you need to do and they'll go do it. I never put value on the relationship. And I realized over time, that's where the growth was coming from, mm. right? It was this supportive relationship. And when I did my research, the closest thing I could see with this was a psychoanalytical relationship. Everybody has a joke about Woody Allen, you know, being really, you know, 20 years, but there's something to that. And unlike people who can't, obviously you have to have a certain, be of a certain socioeconomic strata mm -hmm. to be able to afford that, but they see value in that process because they have to be very careful who they let into their lives. Right? Because everybody wants something from them in a way. So they have to be cautious. They have to know you. They have to build trust. And once that trust is built, they don't want to let you go. So these relationships, I'd be very careful who I engage with because it's a relationship in many ways for life. Yeah. Some I see two, three times a week. Some I don't see for a month or two at a time and get a call. But once you engage, rarely does it ever disintegrate. How are your clients holding up right now? Without, I mean, just Zoom's just not enough. Zoom I mean, is tough. There, there's no... You're not releasing any, uh, uh, what's it called, antocin, uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin from yeah. connection. Yeah, I think it's, for now, I guess it's better than nothing. It's yeah. what we have. But clearly, we're missing something, no doubt about it. There's something about being in somebody's physical presence. My business in the city is shut down. Most of the wealthy people in New York have left. Yeah. They've left to a large degree. So those that are here are unwell. And particularly the clients I've been dealing with today are sick. So Zoom is all we have. And I think the ones that are out on their own in the Hamptons or in their farms in Connecticut or in some other country in New Zealand, and they're okay. I think they're fine. They're dealing with it. There are people that have learned to thrive in this situation right now. I think we're all scared, yeah. but they're finding ways to thrive best that they can. But we're all suffering. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're all, just because you have money, this is the great equalizer. Yeah, it right? is. It's, yeah. It, you know, just because you have money doesn't mean you, you are safe by any stretch of the imagination. Getting back to what I was asking yeah. you before about the clientele. Yeah. So let's assume it's someone's coming to you yeah. today. Is there, what is the process? Right. So the process is talking and getting to know. Now there are tests and assessments that we like to be honest with you. They're great for doing research when I was doing research as a graduate student and afterwards, but usually- You mean like psychometric tests or- Yeah, but not, not, remember our tests, the tests that we use in the field of sports psychology or mental skills are not to diagnose, right? But they're about getting to know people better. Gotcha. All right. And I really don't even use those anymore. I think the best way to get to know somebody is just to talk to them and to get a sense of what their values are. Some of the, one of the, usually one of the best ways to get to know somebody from the start, and it's something I urge everyone to do, is to start with a future me. And particularly with athletes, I say, okay, give me your athletic obituary. Give me, give me a sense of who you are. Not about, I don't care about your accomplishments. I don't care, I don't care about the numbers and what you've accomplished, how many trophies you've received and how many rings you have and blah. I care about what do you want your colleagues and your family to say about you from a character and values perspective? How do you want to be viewed by the world? And that tells a lot about somebody's soul. It gives you some great insight, particularly when they can create a separation of time and space. 
So one of the best coaches I ever had did something extremely similar to that. Mm -hmm. They asked me the first thing that I did, our first, well, I might think it was our first meeting, one of our first, they had me write my own epitaph. Yeah. That was exactly what they had. And it's uncomfortable. And and the idea is- It's really interesting. It's deep. It's deep. And you can do this on your own. But the difference is when you're working with another human being and having that connection with someone else, you feel it closes the gap between intention and action. Just by having some kind of a relationship with somebody, you'll be forced to do it and maybe take a little bit more time. And there are times in doing this process that you will get stuck. You'll find some friction and you will often walk away if you're doing it on your own. But if you're working with someone directly, you take a little push and nudge to move you forward yeah. in a sense of accountability. Yeah, um, let's talk about accountability because a lot of people, everybody wants to lose the weight. <laughs> you know, everybody yeah. wants to run the marathon. Everybody wants to get the big sales, but most people don't follow through. They're not accountable. What do you do with those kinds of people? Are there things, you know, suggestions that you have? Sure. So everybody's different, but if we look at theory, because everything, nothing's as practical as a good theory, right? We have to look at intrinsic motivation, right? Mm. It's called self-deterministic theory, right? DC and Ryan. And we have to understand how to get people moving from extrinsic motivation, ultimately to intrinsic motivation. And we have to create as a coach, we create a scaffolding, right? Under them. And ideally, as they move forward along this continuum, we get to take the scaffolding away. So everyone's a little different, but I think there are ways to connect to people and their values to keep them moving forward. And part of that is picking the right goals. Do they fit? Mm. Are they too big? Are they timely? Everybody talks about the smart, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, time sensitive, but do they fit? Is this the time to approaching them? Are we living right now in a time where we should be taking on these goals? Maybe we need to change them. We often start with this idea of talking about your three Ps, which is really hard to do in the beginning, but we talk about what are your passions? What are your principles or your values? And what is your purpose? Purpose is a hard one. If you throw some, if I throw that when I first meet with somebody, usually they have no idea because they've never really thought about it. I wrote down, sorry to interrupt you, but that was something that I wrote down to talk about further with you. Yeah. And I think this is, by the way, and I think this is a great time to sit in stillness and to ask these questions about being, because often we don't do that if we're constantly doing. And we've gotten off this hedonic treadmill, I think that we're all on in, in New York, in the area. And it gives us the opportunity to ask these questions and they're hard to do on your own. Right? They're hard to be honest and to think through it in a way. And if you're pressed with someone who could walk you through and try to understand it, help you crystallize those thoughts, it could be helpful. But even with that, it is very hard to find alignment immediately between what you value and what your strengths are and your passions and your true purpose. And what that one thing is that you should be working on now, which might not be the thing you should be working on six months from there. Oh, you said the one thing. Do you ever read that book by yeah. any chance? Yeah, the, uh, yeah uh, years Keller, ago. Yeah, Keller, years ago. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a thought on interesting. it? I think he's an interesting guy. I think what he's accomplished was pretty amazing, but I agree with him. I think he's spot on. It boils down to every time you're doing something, what's the one thing that, that I question. could be doing right now that makes everything else either insignificant yeah, exactly. or- Exactly. It's also backed by a book called Essentialism. Did you read that book? I don't no, know. I've heard of it. I haven't read it now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's hard to do because we're getting pulled in so many different directions and we're all looking to optimize. And so much, I get all these calls about brain hacking and what's the one thing that I can do to, like, probably the one thing you do is stop trying to perform more. Maybe we need to perform a little bit less. And I think if you look at the Stoic, a lot, I'm very interested in Stoic philosophy. I think Ryan Holiday's done a great job with a lot of his books, most recently called Stillness, which is a great book. I recommend it. And I gave it to a lot of my clients, even within the NFL, that came big in that world. They really love this obstacle as a way. And it actually, it's pertinent now. It's very timely now. Good book to read. But I think this idea of just sitting still and what the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called amor fate, right? Accepting one's fate having a radical acceptance of where you are and what you're doing right now and to reassess and say, am I on the right path? This is my opportunity to change. How often do you do that? Too often. Oh, right. Part of- <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a coach? Of course. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, for, for, of course, multiple coaches and worked with therapists through years. And even within this Unbeatable Mind program, when you get into this emotional stuff, it could get sticky. And in many ways, we say it may be time to talk to a therapist and maybe even a depth psychologist to go a little bit deeper into understanding your history and the narrative that you created and maybe work on a little bit more of creating a new narrative. At this stage of the game, I can't imagine functioning at the level that I function on and the demands that are asked of me with these clients if I did not have a support system around me. The average therapist, I was told, has uh, on average two therapists. Yeah. 
I have a psychoanalyst I speak to weekly who's been doing this for 55 years, and I bring every case to him and we discuss it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how can you not? How, how could I have the hubris to think that I could deal with all these people and their issues on my own? Wow. My God. It's- so you offered something that I thought was beyond generous. Uh, you, are you okay if we talk about this yeah, now? Yeah, that's, that's what we're here. That's what we're here for. All right. And I, I think it's uh, extremely benevolent of you. And I'd love to, let's first kind of throw it out there, exactly what that is. But I'd like to, after you share what you're going to offer, I'd love to find out why. Why? What prompted this, this offering? So if you don't mind, share with the audience what it is that you're willing to offer. So I would say my practice right now has dropped off by a third. And I could choose to approach this two different ways. Right? I could try to get new clients right now and continue on that treadmill. Or I can kind of take my own medicine here, right? Eat my own dog food and say, okay, you know, it's time to step back and to reassess things. This is the opportunity and take advantage of that. And I think what I decided to do now, because we can't do a whole heck of a lot other than isolate. It's like, how can I give back? And I want to value my strengths and my offerings to the world. And uh, what I can offer is coaching. This is what I do. And I like to offer it to someone who maybe otherwise would not be able to afford it or have access to it any other time. So I thought rather than filling up my book again with clients that I typically work with, Maybe I can offer these you know, services to someone who could use it right now and can need it pro bono. And uh, yeah. so, I mean, it's just beyond generous. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, whoever is the lucky person that, that's fortunate enough to receive your services. Well, let me ask you this. What would you hope? You're, that it's, it's very generous. What would you suggest that they do? Because this is one of the beauties of like with the relationships that I talk about when I'm trying to help people. And I, I say, it's always give first. So... I'm very fortunate in my life. I call it a, a karmatic boomerang. You know, <laughs> it's good. It, it's just about so. So, what would you hope that someone that you're able to kind of take to another level does for somebody else? I think every time you can help people elevate their game, every time you can help people master their craft, every time you can make people upgrade their life in some way, they are going to impact others. Mm. And there is a ripple effect that goes on and on and on and on. Partly why I like to work, I am not. I don't care about working with celebrities. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me, right? I want because I work with people. I do give away my services to people who can't afford it in the elite sporting world who, who really don't have that kind of sports system. What I'm interested in is people who are looking to move the needle in such a way that makes the world a better place. Mm. Right? It's not self mastery for the sake of self mastery, just building ego. It's about self mastery in service of others. So the idea is if we can amplify meaning through greater connection to self and others for a greater purpose. And coaching, my coaching can help you do that. <laughs> what better gift to give right now? Wow, that's I mean, inspirable. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Yeah. I listen to so many people these days on podcasts and access to a lot of minds that you probably would not have access to. But some of the people that are most inspirational for me probably at this point and always seem strange are people that have passed away that I've read, that I studied growing up, that I've admired, some of these psychologists that I discussed, like Albert Ellis, who taught me that a guy from Brooklyn, like me, coming from Trenton, from the inner city, very blue collar, could elevate himself in the world of academia and have a stage with some people that most people would only dream to have a stage with and actually be in their ears. I could never imagine something that would be possible if I didn't see someone else do it before me. You know, do you ever watch some of the people that you are working with? Or have you ever been in a room, you know, or a bar, and there are this person's on TV, yeah. and you know that you've made the difference? No, I've never, and, and, and I've never, I've never made any difference. To have again, cor- be careful, correlation and causation, and uh, I don't feel that we could prove we do anything that's measurable in that sense. Hmm. I have a feeling this is you being a little too humble. Listen, would you, would you say gym, what, a, what a, okay. It's yeah. very different, right? Yeah. It's something subjective. We've had you on this cycle for a while. We've improved your backs by 20%. And we know it's exactly because of this because we controlled every variable. We can't do that in psychosocial relationships. That's impossible. Yeah. I still think you're being humble. <laughs> but well, would you attribute any things that you've had or accomplished to your coaches? It's a funny thing with coaches or therapy or analysis. And I think part of the problem is people go into these relationships well without having a great understanding of what that relationship is, what it should feel like, and how to define success. 
And I think probably one of the best ways to define success for me is that I'm even here speaking with you. Because by my very nature, I'm a shy, introverted guy. And uh, I've never been comfortable putting myself out there. And it's why I haven't to this point. I basically have stayed behind the scenes. Other than teaching undergraduates, I really have no public persona. And if I weren't working with someone right now, probably that's pushing me to do a little bit more about getting a message out there publicly, I wouldn't be able to do it. So I'm defining it by my behaviors, but I know that, and I, I know that intrinsically, I can't understand what someone else is thinking or what drives them. It's a good answer. It's making me think. <laughs> good. So some of the favorite parts of the show from a lot of the listeners is when I ask, because I usually don't ask, I don't come, neither of us, we had no scripted questions. No. But I do have a ton. I'm always thinking and like you, very curious about people. So I do have pages of questions right here. So, and I've got them broken down by different categories. Okay. And if you don't mind, if you'd humor me yep. and uh, I'll let you control, not what the question is, but have control of what the question potentially could be. So let's start as it relates to work. I want you to choose a number between one and 16 and I'll throw a question at you. Seven. Seven. Mickey Mantle. Nice. All right. That's right. You're a baseball. What, what position were you? I was a center fielder. That's another story because I always say baseball saved my life. So uh, let's talk, if you don't mind, <laughs> let's talk about that before we go into, can you share? So growing up in Trenton, let's just say I wasn't necessarily on the right side of the tracks. And uh, for those that don't know, we have a global population. Trenton, yes. this is Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton, uh, New give Jersey. a little color of Trenton. The world makes, world takes its capital, <laughs> but um, it's city. And for my friends, let's just say fighting was, was a pastime every weekend. It was, a, it was a sport. It was not just a spectator sport. We were involved with it. And by the time I was in high school, I was a bookie. Uh, and baseball kept me, sport kept me on a relatively straight path and it gave me a vehicle to move away from Trenton and go to college. And the moment I did go to college, three of my best friends that very year when I was freshman went to jail. So I think it at least up into college and I quit college and I could at baseball and it was a little too hard on myself and it wasn't fun anymore, but without a doubt, it kept me alive and probably out of jail. So it did save my life. And I think that's a positive, that sport creates so many possibilities, right? Beyond. And it goes just in terms of reflecting society and society reflecting sport and giving opportunity. And from a racial perspective and a gender perspective, it's a great equalizer. And it's yeah. just such a wonderful, wonderful venue to express ourselves. Yeah. And it goes so far beyond from a psychosocial perspective, just the game itself. So, you know, it's, it's so interesting. The question that you chose because of your favorite number as a result of baseball, which brought us to what you just explained, let me give you the question. How has your life turned out different than you had anticipated or expected it to have been at this point in your life? You know what the good thing about growing up relatively lower middle class? You have very low expectations, maybe none. A lot of my friends didn't go to college. They're cops or they're iron workers or they own restaurants and pizza places. And they're very happy and very successful. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather came from Italy and he was a baker. The happiest guys I remember. So expectations, we weren't really looking to make a lot of money or have academic accolades. I, it just, this was the path I was, I took because I followed my curiosity and my interest and how I could in some way, shape, or form, leverage my talents to help other people. Mm. But there were no expectations, and I could thank my parents for that. They just kind of let me. I mean, there is no way in hell a kid from Trenton, New Jersey, should be studying philosophy <laughs> at, at a private college, and they paid for it. They didn't even know what philosophy was. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Talk to me. Now we're going to break it down by networking questions. Okay. One to 12. Can't use seven. 12. 12. Any man, I love your decisiveness. Any uh, Adam 12. All right. We're both Adam. All right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I like that. Tell me a story about someone that you have done business with that you met through a relationship that you didn't have the intent of doing any business together. It just happened organically. I'm going to shape this question. I'm going to be political. I don't have a political bone in my body, but I've learned a lot from watching <laughs> politicians right, to answer the question you want to answer. So with my business, we don't market. I can't say who I work with, how I work. Up until this time, I don't have a website, really. I worked with one client. And that one client 
basically grew my entire business through word of mouth by creating a relationship with her. And she connected me with a lot of other people. And I had no expectations in working with these people, but it was just a connection. And they called me out of their own curiosity and we had a discussion. And I could say probably that the first 10 people I worked with, I would say I had no expectation out of with meeting any of them that it would lead to any kind of business relationship or supportive relationship on my side. So is it a result of just you obviously being good at your craft or how much is, is it of the, the craft versus your ability to connect with them, make them feel psychologically safe, comfortable, and just a good guy that they feel confident putting their name behind? So if you're in any business, you have to have the foundation of skills. Right. Let's assume knowledge and skills that at least bring you to a certain level. Mm -hmm. I think the rest of it are the psychosocial skills. And I think I'm not exceptional at what I do. I think people are, I think, probably more talented than I am in many ways. What I can do well, I think, is that I bring a perspective that I grew up with on the streets of Trenton. And it's very real. It's very authentic. It's very transparent. And uh, I pull no punches. You, know, you kind of see what you get. I have some fancy letters after my name, but I don't think that's why people work with me. I think people feel comfortable and they trust me and they trust that whatever they tell me is going to be held in confidence and I respect them. And I'm, no matter where you are in your life, I'm going to give you unconditional positive regard. And for a lot of people, I think, especially at that level, they're not accustomed to that. Just being heard, just having someone capable of being present with them and uh, listening to them. But you're not a yes man. Just the opposite. Yeah. That's why they like it. Yeah. Because I tell them, yeah, you're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. What are you going to do? Fire me? Yeah. What's the worst? Okay, fine. You know, it's like, okay, great. That's, you know, but that's the kind of relationship I develop with all my clients. And I think they appreciate that because they don't get it. That level of authenticity is what they need. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's even on the physical realm too. It's not just on the, what, the what do you mean by the realm. physical realm? Yeah. In terms of their training, in terms of what they're doing, in terms of what their focus are, what their goals are. And if they want to come to me and tell me, listen, I need to lose 10 pounds. I'm like, why? Where are you coming up with that nonsense idea? You're going to waste your time on 10 pounds? Let's work, work more on function and performing better and get off this idea that you need to look better on the camera with 10 pounds because it doesn't make a difference. It's only in your head. And I think a lot of people wouldn't do that. Their story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's helping them create a better narrative that's more functional, but at the same time being true to myself because it's what I think they need and why they're paying me. They don't need anybody else telling them to, yeah, yeah, they have a great idea. <laughs> yeah. they, they must people telling that yeah okay number between 17 and 59 <laughs> all right that's an easy 23 easy okay. easy one 23 don mattingly and jordan oh, come on wow Both. yeah there you go yeah that's right jordan it's true it's a good one you think mattingly is going to go into the hall of fame no unfortunately and it breaks my time, breaks right? my it? heart it breaks He's my heart gonna... you can't do it because because of his back it's cut his life short, unfortunately. So you don't think that they should even acknowledge, like, because that's one of the debates. Do they acknowledge, because he was a leader in what he did for the team, and I know that doesn't show up in the stats. And, but, he, did, uh, and he didn't win and until the next year, unfortunately, right? right, right? When Jeter came right. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, it kills me because, by the way, Don Mattingly, is, he's the perfect example of, he was not the most talented guy out there, but he outworked everyone on the field. And Johnny from a mental, mental toughness perspective, man, he defines it. That's why I loved him. I grew up every night. I had his poster over my bed. It's very famous. called the Hitman poster. He had a double-breasted suit that was white with yeah, pinstripes. Yeah, yeah. I went to bed with him every night. A friend of yeah. mine had that poster. Yep. That's funny. I was a Met fan, but I still very familiar with that. Everybody, <laughs> you can't not like Donnie baseball. Absolutely. All right. So, all right. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so to Donnie, uh, let's see. Tell me something that you had a viewpoint that has changed. I'd love to know. What caused that change? So I don't know if it was somebody or maybe, I don't know, whether it was like legalization of marriage. I mean, it could be anything, any, any point that you, that you originally had a viewpoint of and then you changed. That's an interesting question. Never been asked that one before. Yeah, I'm always curious to what, because there, there, there are some people that, you, that get through to you or. Okay. Somebody could use this. I think growing up and going to these colleges and going on in my education, graduate education, in many ways, I thought I had to hide my background. And I just thought there was no place for that in higher education and graduate school, even getting into the world in New York. I was in technology for a couple of years before I started all of this. It was like it never existed. You know, you could say I grew up into a, a small town somewhere near Princeton, New Jersey. Little did I know, right? Where yeah. I grew up was nothing like Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> and I think 
as time has gone on and uh, I become more confident in myself and understanding the value of authenticity in relationships, I think I learned to make it being transparent becomes much more of an asset. And uh, I think there's something learned in, in, in terms of that. And what prompted that? When did the, the light go on, the light bulb go that, wow, all right, there's a lot to be said about my background. It's time to own it. I think it's probably being in therapy, talking about these issues and doing some real serious self-reflection. I can't say that there was a, a direct point in time or a person, but I think this is what you can do when you have time to self-reflect yeah. and to ask some really serious questions in terms of who you want to be and who you want to present to the world. And if you're not aligned with who you are, then maybe you should change because it doesn't matter how much you accomplish. I worked with a guy. He was running a $21 billion hedge fund. I was at one of his many houses. And as we walked out the door, we had a discussion. Scratch golfer, by the way, on top of it all. Once He said, look at all I have. And I turned to him and said, yeah, but you're miserable. What good is it? Right? And he, I figured he's never going to call me back. And you know what? The next day, I said, when, when are we going to meet again? So it was to show you that in the past, I would have never gone there. Yeah. Interesting. My last question <laughs> before I let you leave, I feel uh, keeping you from your family right now. No, um, I enjoy this. But uh, one and 14. Give me a, give me one. One and 14. <sighs> three. Any reason? Is that a Jeter or is there uh what do we got? Well, that was three? two. I, I, I was oh, three. Lou, Lou, Gehrig, Lou Gehrig. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Let's go. Number three. Think. Or is that Babe Ruth? I don't recall. I'm a Met fan. Um, come Shouldn't on, be admitting this, that is, this goes far beyond. This is baseball. Yeah. All right. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. I can look it up. Tell me a day that you've had that you're never going to forget. I mean, that's an easy one. The day my kid was born. Yeah. What day was that? So he is 13 now. So 8706. Uh, yeah. I never thought I'd have a child. So uh, we went through, uh, without going a lot of detail, it took as many years and a lot of but thank God for science. We were told basically it wasn't going to happen. You're kidding me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we had, a, I tell, tell you an interesting story. Our, we had neighbors. Babe Ruth, by the way. It was. Lou Gehrig okay. was four. Gotcha. <laughs> thank you for that clarification. So we had neighbors that were trying for 10 years. Mm -hmm. They took a lot of the drugs. Yes. Uh, I forgot what those are called. They tried everything. After 10 years, uh, she was 40. He was 50. Wow. She said, uh, Regina, it's time to throw in the towel. We're not going to have a kid. And she started smoking and drinking again, Jeez. and uh, two weeks later, they got pregnant. Interesting. Yeah. So she stopped pressing so stress. hard. We decided, somebody told us to try to get a dog. A dog? A we dog. that. And we did, and within three months, the last shot, last go around, it worked. Wow. Fantastic. So I guess that is kind of an important Correlation day. or causation, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. This has been a lot of fun, extremely insightful. Your benevolence will be appreciated, not just by myself, but also those who are listening, I'll send something when this goes out, but you can uh, apply any, any criteria that you would like to. You so know, here's my, know, obviously we don't want them to be affluent. Here's right? my ask okay. yeah, yeah, that, let's hear, yeah. that you're committed to change mm -hmm. because it's not just having a discussion. We talk once every two weeks, it's doing homework every day. It's doing the hard work and self-reflection and getting on paper and journaling and getting it in a timely manner. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. It's not what we want to do is we want to affect real change. And if you're not committed to this process that you're willing to put a couple hours a week in, please don't bother because yeah. don't, don't waste my time. And I'm not going to waste yours because I'm going to be fully committed to you just like any other client. So that's my one ask. So let me ask you this, cause I'm going to have this. So you don't get bombarded. Let's have, we'll have it go through me. I'll have those who are interested, send an email to info at networkwise.com and what would you, because we're going to get it, we're going to receive a decent amount of these. Yes. What would you like them to answer? Where like, I'd, I'd like this almost like a, a cover letter of a resume almost. What is it that you'd like to read that's going to help you to make a decision? So I think the best way to handle this is not to give any criteria. Interesting. Yeah. Let's see how you could create, creatively create a situation that piques my interest because it has to go both ways. Yeah. I want to be interested in you as well and what you're doing and your situation. So I'll leave it up to you. Paint a picture of your story that makes sense and why you think coaching could be helpful. Okay, yeah. Yeah. great. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, great. cheers, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, 
or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.